All right, let's pray before we uh, dig into the Word of God. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today to worship you and also to hear from you. Lord, give us a word of encouragement and a word of challenge from the Bible today. May we hear clearly the teaching of your word and may we know what it is that you are calling us to do. Lord, we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So today we are actually going to finish our origin stories series that we've been in for the last few months. Um, Next week, Pastor Mike is going to be beginning our new summer sermon series, uh, which is called A People Full of God, and it will be a a series going through the book of Ephesians. It's going to be great stuff. It's going to focus on uh, the grace of God and how it works out in our salvation. But um, before we leave origin stories behind, um, we're going to have one last bonus episode of origin stories after today. And that's going to happen on Friday. So what we're going to do is, you remember how back at the beginning of this series, we spent a couple of weeks talking about science and creation and evolution and all of those kinds of things and and some of those uh, issues around the text um, relating to science and, uh, and our observation of the natural world. Um, we want to do the same thing with Noah's flood, except that we've decided not to do it as a, a sermon and a regular service, but we're going to do it as a special event. So on Friday, we're going to do kind of a classroom style. Um, I used to be a uh, college professor, so we're going to do it the way we used to do it when I was a teacher, and we're going to have a classroom style uh, session there at 3300 Spinard at our building over there. Uh, Come together at 7 o'clock, and uh, we'll have uh, a nice time uh, in a teaching and discussion of those issues relating to the science of the flood. Questions like, was the flood really worldwide? And where did all that water to flood the whole earth come from? And how did all the animals and a year's supply of food for them all fit onto the ark? And what are the interpretive options that are allowed to us by the text? So we believe that the Bible is 100% accurate and trustworthy. And we are not afraid to look at some of these passages that are a little bit hard to believe and to take a, a, a close look at them and see how we can best understand those things. So if you have some of those kinds of questions in your mind about that story, um, then come down to Spinard on Friday and we will uh, we'll have that good uh, bonus episode of origin stories. But today uh, we have one last origin story from the book of Genesis that we'll be uh, covering today. And it's from Genesis chapter 11. And it is the story of the Tower of Babel. Very uh, famous story from the Bible, the Tower of Babel. So let's just go ahead and read the story uh, from the scripture right now. So here it is, Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So here we have uh, our, our setup for the story here. This is apparently some time after the flood, a uh, long enough time that the uh, people have uh, 
uh, the, the eight people who came out of the ark have now multiplied out to where there's enough people to, to build a city. So we're, we're imagining it's, it's uh, you know, several generations at least, and uh, must be at least a few thousand people to uh, build this city. So as they are migrating together, they find this plain that seems like a good place for them to settle down. And then in verse 3, it says, Then they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, um, I lost some stuff. Then they said, uh, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So they decided that this plain where they had found here, this plain of Shinar, was, uh, had all the resources they needed to sustain their growing population. And so they said, this is the spot. This is where we're going to settle down. And, uh, and they're going to build a city there. And the key feature of that city is going to be a tower that reaches to the heavens. And we're going to come back to this, uh, this section right here and look more closely at what exactly it was that they were intending to do here. Um, but first, let's get the basic plot of the whole story first, and then we'll come back to this, this part. So then in verse 5, it says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. Of course, it's not that God needed to travel down somewhere to investigate, but this is a dramatic and uh, storytelling way of saying that God was aware of what it was that they were doing as they were building this thing. And then it says, the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So obviously there is a bit of an interesting uh, historical information in this story about the origin of languages. Um, we can only speculate about exactly how many languages were created at this point, uh, but the impression is that there was a, a good number of languages that were all uh, originated at this one, this one time here. And, uh, and probably that included what linguists call these the proto-languages that later developed into language families that spread out and evolved into all the various languages that we see today. But as interesting as that is from a linguistic standpoint, it's not really the main point of the text here. The main point of the text has to do with the interaction between God and the people in this story. Um, so the main points of the plot of the story are, are pretty clear. Uh, the people start building a city with this big prominent tower in it. God is unhappy with their city and their tower and decides to put a stop to it. And he does that by introducing linguistic confusion. And this results in the people giving up on the tower and spreading out across the planet. So that's the basic story. But it requires a little more thinking to figure out the significance of what is really going on 
in this story. So let's go back now to verse 4, where it says, uh, it's, it's stating the intentions of the people in, uh, as, as they start to settle this place. It says, uh, first thing they decided they wanted to do was they wanted to build a city. So does God not like cities? Was there some problem here that God wants them to be living out in the countryside and don't build cities? It doesn't seem like it. Um, God has no problem with cities throughout the scriptures. In fact, later on, um, when God decides to choose a place to call his special dwelling place, he chooses the city of Jerusalem. Um, and, in, in, you know, in the myths around some other religions, like uh, the Greek uh, gods and those guys, the Greek gods lived where? They lived out on Mount Olympus, this far-off place of a mountaintop with no population out there or anything, uh, a place of natural beauty and, uh, and, and all this kind of thing. And, you know, God could have chosen a place like that, right? God could have said, oh, yes, my dwelling place is going to be the top of a high mountain, or it's going to be this, this uh, beautiful valley over here, or this river or something. But no, God chose to have his temple in a city. God chose to dwell with his people in the city rather than in some sparsely populated portion of the globe. Because God wants his people to know him, and he wants to be among them. But the main point for our passage is the fact that, that they're building a city. That's not a problem. God's okay with cities. So what else does the text say? Well, it says that they want to build a tower in this city that will reach to the heavens. So that actually is the first really big problematic thing with their plan here. They want a tower that will reach to the heavens. But what, what, what does that exactly mean, to the, the, the tower is going to reach to the heavens? It means more than simply that it's going to be really tall, right? Uh, the tower was supposed to have a religious purpose. It was supposed to reach up to God himself, reach up to the heavens, now, why would you need a tower that reaches up to God? Well, the story here in Genesis doesn't actually explain, but what we do know from other ancient religious towers um, that people eventually did build in this area, and we uh, know historically that later on they built these kinds of things, and, and so it's a pretty, pretty likely that this one was supposed to be the first of its kind that uh, eventually did get built by the descendants of these people. So these ancient religious towers, they were called ziggurats. And a ziggurat is a kind of a pyramid. Um, these pyramids would, uh, they would go up and then they'd have a level spot and go up and level off, and go up and level off. Uh, kind of like the ones you see in uh, the Aztecs uh, having built down in uh, Mexico, these uh, step pyramids. Uh, that's kind of what a ziggurat was like. And, um, and these towers had two key features. The first thing is they're really tall, much taller than anything else that people could build in those days. And the second feature was that there was a staircase from top to bottom. Now, typically in the ancient Middle East, 
there was not a temple on the top of the ziggurat. It wasn't like the God dwells up there, and so we go up there to meet with him in his temple. That's not what the ziggurat was for. Um, the temple of the God would be built nearby for um, people to worship him. So then what's the point of the tower? Well, the tower was so the God could come down from the heavens and visit his people in the temple. And it's pretty likely that this was what the people of Babel wanted to build. They wanted to build something like this. They wanted to make sure that God would have an easy path to come down and be among them and to interact with them. So that doesn't sound so bad, right? What's the problem with that? Why wouldn't God like that? Well, because it is a flawed understanding of God. See, does God need us to build him some kind of a pathway so that he can come and help us? Is he stuck up there in heaven wishing there was a way to come down? Boy, I'd really like to help those guys, but there's no means for me. No. God does not need anything from us. As the story tells us, before the tower was completed, it says God came down to see what they were doing, which is probably a little uh, intentional uh, irony in the story there. They're trying to build a way for God to come down and visit them, and God comes down and takes a look at it. Um, so the problem with this tower is really pretty similar to the problem that God has with idols and images that would be built to, to aid in worship. Right, So uh, it was very common in, in religions in, in the ancient world, and even today in some places, to build a statue of some kind that would represent at least aspects of the God that you wanted to worship, and that would be an aid for you in, in worshiping him. But God uh, prohibited that. He said, no statues, no images of, of me at all. Why not? Because any uh, statue, any representation like that is is necessarily going to diminish your view of God. A God that can be represented as an animal or as some kind of a, a person or something is, is not uh, the real God. Our God cannot be represented that way. It diminishes him to do that. And this tower has the same problem. It diminishes God to think that we need to have some kind of a staircase for him to, to come down and... And visit us. So is God really up there needing us to make a way for him to come down to us? No. It's a false idea about who God is and how we should relate to him. So then the second thing in the text that's a real problem for the people here and their plan is that they have come up with a new plan and a new purpose for their lives that is different from the plan and the purpose that God has given to them. Their stated intention here in verse 4 is so that they can make a name for themselves and not be scattered across the globe. But God's intention for them, what he had told them to do, had nothing to do with making a name for themselves. Uh, and, and they were supposed to go out and subdue the earth and, and rule over it as God's representatives. But they had decided that their own idea 
was better than God's idea. Making a name for themselves rather than bringing glory to God and flat out defying God's instruction to spread out around the earth. And so God confuses their languages in order to get them off of this plan and lead them further from his will. He says, this, if this is the direction that these people are going, then nothing will be impossible for them. In other words, there will be no limit to the ways that they will distort their understanding of God and no limit to the ways that they will rebel against God's purpose and will for their lives. So in order to restrain their sin, in order to limit the uh, way that they can all go astray, um, God uh, divides people from one another through the, the different languages. And that is actually an act of mercy on God's part to slow the progress and development of sin among humanity and to keep them from quickly becoming a copy of the pre-flood society, which he had recently had to uh, judge because it was so full of violence and sin. Also, this is part of God's, uh, this is one of the first parts of God's plan, uh, which is his plan was to work through a particular subset of humanity. His chosen people, the children of Abraham, who is introduced in the very next chapter, we get to Abraham. Um, and, and God's plan was that he would take one nation from among all the nations and he would uh, bring the blessing uh, to the whole world through that one nation. And the division of people into language groups of the Tower of Babel was a necessary step in that plan to have a chosen nation and a chosen people. So scattering the various uh, people by language groups here is a means of slowing the growth of human sin, and it is a part of God's ultimate plan to make it possible for people from all nations to be saved from their sins. And then the story ends with the people giving up on their rebellious plan and returning to God's plan for them and going ahead and spreading out across the planet. So what are our big lessons that we take away from this story? There's a couple of them here. First, God cares about how we understand and worship him. Building a tower to reach to heaven that gives a false understanding of who he is and how we relate to him matters. It matters. It matters because God wants us to know him. He wants us to know the truth of him. He wants us to understand him correctly. And of course, the best way for us to learn about God and to come to understand him correctly is through the study of his word, the Bible, where he has revealed himself in a whole, whole lot of different ways through stories, through direct teaching, all these kinds of things that we can learn about who God really is. Second big lesson that we take away from this is that God's plan for your life is better than your own plan for your life. And that when, you know, God has intentions for us. God has intentions for humanity in general. And he also has intentions for us as individuals. And when we choose our own goals and our own purposes rather than God's, 
we will find that God does not bless that. In fact, we may find that God directly opposes your plans that contradict God's will. So how do we know what God's intentions are for us? Again, it's, it's in the Bible. There's a lot of talk in the Bible about what it is that God expects from people and how he wants us to live. Um, and uh, you can learn all these things by reading and studying the Bible and pay special attention to the, they have, there's great summary statements every once in a while that tell you what it is that God wants from us. Uh, the prophet Micah has, has one. He says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So, don't be like the people of Babel. Seek to know the truth about God and about his will for your life and live according to that truth. Now, I want to go back a little bit here and, and, and talk about uh, Genesis chapter 10 for just a moment. Genesis chapter 10 is, is sandwiched between the story of the flood and the story of the Tower of Babel. And in Genesis chapter 10, what we have is, um, is the, the, the story of the descendants. Uh, I say story. It's not really a story. A list of the descendants of Noah and his sons after the flood. Um, so it, it doesn't really make for very interesting reading. So I, I'm not actually going to read very much of it because it's mostly just a list of very hard to pronounce names. But, but here's what uh, I'll summarize it for us. It lists off all these nations that descended from the various, uh, the three sons of Noah. So um, we have 14 nations that are named who descended from Noah's son Japheth. There's 30 nations that descended from Ham. And then 26 nations that descended from Noah's son Shem. And that makes for 70 nations altogether that are listed here which 70 is a symbolic number in the Bible. It's the number of completeness. Um, and so this is obviously, you know, it's not a list of all the nations that uh, existed. It's a symbolic list of the 70 uh, uh, nations that, that make up the complete nations of the world. It, it, it's, it's not complete enough. You know, even Moses knew about other nations that existed that uh, were not uh, part of this list including like the nation of Israel, which is not on the list. Um, and, uh, but this list showed many of the nations that lived in the greater Middle East and would have had interactions with the people who Genesis was originally written for, the, the Israelite people. Um, and I do want to take a, a, a quick note here to explain something. Um, most of what's described here in Genesis chapter 10, all these 70 nations had to have taken place after the Tower of Babel. Even though it's, this is chapter 10 and the Tower of Babel doesn't come till chapter 11. Um, the way that the author has written this, he's given all this genealogical data and talked all about how the three sons expanded out into all these nations. And then he goes back in chapter 11 to talk about something that happened at the beginning of that uh, expansion. But anyway... Um, the fact that there's 70 nations that are listed here and that 70 is this symbolic number of completeness means that this list is meant to tell us that all the nations of the earth all came from 
Noah and his three sons. Um, even those nations that are not named in the list, still, they're all descended from Noah. And that means that all of us are descended from Noah and his three sons. And the last verse of chapter uh, 10 really sums up the, the big idea of this chapter. It says, These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. So this is where the nations that spread out all over the planet uh, came from. Uh, after, after the flood. This is how we got to all the nations that are all over the earth, including all those nations that are not mentioned specifically in the, the list here, like all the peoples of Europe, all the peoples of Africa, part, Southern Africa, I'll say. Northern Africa is in the list. Uh, all the peoples of uh, East Asia, South America, North America, Australia, and all the little islands in between. Uh, they're all included also, even though they're not named in the list. So, between this summary list of all these nations in chapter 10 and the story in, uh, of Babel and how it creates this origin story of how all these different peoples divided up after the flood, um, what we have here is an origin story of the racial and ethnic and cultural differences uh, that we see in the world today. And what is the basic truth that this story is telling us about those differences that we have? The basic truth is we're all related. We all trace our ancestors back to the same family. No matter how much we've become different from each other in terms of our language and our culture and our skin color and the various physical traits, we are all one people. Sometimes I feel like this is almost too obvious, but, but, but let's just say the Bible teaches we are all the same. We are all children of Adam and Eve. We are all children of Noah and his three sons. And the ethnic differences that we see are just minor variations. God sees us all primarily as humans not as Chinese or Arabs or Russians or Zulus or, or, or Englishmen or whatever. And that means that any philosophy, any way of seeing the world that sees one race as superior to other races is in contradiction to the teachings of the Bible. Now, I, uh, I spent almost 10 years as a missionary in South Africa, and South Africa has an interesting history when it comes to these issues around race, because through much of the 20th century, uh, South Africa had a legal system that was called apartheid. Apartheid is an Afrikaans word. It means separateness. And uh, in the apartheid system, they uh, defined various races and ranked them. Uh, so at the top of the system were, of course, the white people of European descent. They were considered the superior race. And then below them, uh, in the hierarchy of apartheid, were Asian people, which in South Africa, that's primarily Indians uh, that lived there, were, were considered of second class. And then beneath them were people that were mixed race, 
because at least they had some white blood in them, right? So, so they were next. And then at the bottom, fourth class, would be the black African people who lived there. And this uh, whole system was written into the Constitution. And it was, uh, it was legally defined uh, how the different races could relate to one another and what kinds of privileges and restrictions were put on people according to their race. And, um, and this whole racist system affected all kinds of things in the life of the people of that nation. One of the great tragedies of that whole thing was that the people who invented this simple system claimed to be the privileged people of God and claimed that God endorsed this whole thing. But the Bible does not endorse any kind of thinking like this. Not in matters of law and not in matters of private behavior and thinking. Racism is not supported by the teachings of the Bible. Quite the contrary, the Bible teaches that we, are, we all share the same parentage and we are all essentially the same in the eyes of God. So there's a few places uh, where the Bible teaches this very clearly. Uh, one of the places is in the book of Galatians where uh, it says this. It says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And then very similarly in the book of Colossians, it says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. See, God does not differentiate between people of different ethnicities. There is no superiority of one or another in the eyes of God. He accepts all races in the same way. And the Apostle Peter, he learned that story in the book of Acts, or learned that lesson from a story in the book of Acts. Uh, God told Peter, I want you to go and preach the gospel, tell people about Jesus, but the people I want you to talk to is a Roman soldier and all of his uh, Roman soldier friends. And for Peter, that was a big deal because Peter, as a good Jew, you know, the, the, in the history of the world in those days, the Jewish people, who, including Peter, had been conquered by these Italian Romans who were ruling over them. And, uh, and dominating their people. And so, so he had grown up in this idea that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. We're the people of God. They're the people who worship idols. Um, and, and now God was telling him through a special revelation, go and talk to this Roman. And then when he gets there, um, and he, he approaches the Romans and he says, hey, God told me to come and talk to you. And they said, yeah, God told me to call for you to come and talk to us. And then we have this verse from Acts chapter 10. It should look familiar to you because it was our memory verse a few months ago. It says, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation 
the one who fears him and does what is right. Yes, even Roman soldiers. You can hear the surprise in, in Peter's words here. Whoa, now I really see the truth that God accepts people from every nation. And Peter now realizes that God does not show favoritism. And yeah, this, this does also uh, occur in the Old Testament. Sometimes we think, oh yeah, in the New Testament, God included all kinds of people, but in the Old Testament, it was different. No, even in the Old Testament, God wanted worship from people of many nations. And we see that in, in a number of different places. I'm gonna, just going to read a couple of lines from, from King David. In the book of 1 Chronicles, he wrote this uh, song, and it, and it says like this, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. God wanted people from every nation all around the world to all be coming and worshiping him. And God does not show favoritism and neither should we. So any understanding of race that sees one race as better than another is out of touch with the heart and mind of God. So our lessons from the Tower of Babel are these. First one is that God really cares about how we understand him and how we relate to him. Uh, He wants us to know him, and he opposes things that distort our view of God. Second thing that we saw was that God really cares that we follow his ways and live our lives according to his purposes. God gives us a lot of freedom in the details about how we live our lives and how, you know, the day-to-day decisions we make and, and various things, but we are not free to change the purposes and goals for which he has created us. And lastly, this teaching about the origin of nations and races shows us that we are all one human race created equal before God, and any teaching that says differently is a sinful distortion of who and what we are. So... Let us seek to live not like the people of Babel, but according to the lessons that we learn from it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you restricted the sin that uh, our people, our ancestors wanted to commit at Babel and that you limited the corruption of our society. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in our lives to hinder us from sinning and steer us back toward you. Lord, we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.